for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned because epilepsy research and science are cool. One of the bad things about telehealth is you don't have that same feeling in the room of the patient walking in and being down and people can put on a bright face when they're on Zoom for five minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour. But if you're in the room, it's much, much easier to feel if there's a mental health problem. Are you ready? This week it is platinum. From Melbourne, Australia, we speak with the world-renowned paediatric neurologist and adult epileptologist, laureate professor Ingrid Schaeffer, and neurogeneticist and head of the Translational Neurogenetics Lab, assistant professor Michael Hildebrandt. They are going to tell us all about their exciting and, quite frankly, rather cool research into their huge study regarding febrile seizures and a baby or child's genetic likelihood of having more seizures and developing epilepsy. Stay tuned, and if you'd like to learn more about epilepsy and epilepsy research each and every week, subscribe to the channel and hit that bell down there for notifications. If you're already a fan of the channel, we'd like really appreciate it if you could like this video because it makes a real difference to us and enables more people to see credible content about epilepsy. Also note that you can now access more cool information about our guests and their work via toryrobinson.com. The link is down below. Hello, Ingrid and Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please tell us a little bit about your work um, and your background and your research into epilepsy? Thanks, Tori. Um, so I've, I guess I've been working for about a decade now um, on the genetics of epilepsies, working um, on, with, in Ingrid's team. Um, okay. And I was very fortunate, I think, in the timing. I started back in, in 2011, late 2011. Um, mm -hmm. And around that time, um, in 2012, actually, the first papers came out describing um, sporadic mutations that cause the epilepsies. Um, and really that was, you know, built off a lot of a foundation of work, decades of work by Ingrid and her colleagues looking at the inherited um, epilepsies. Um, and I was fortunate to start at a time when we were starting to think more about um, causes of epilepsy that can um, take place very early in development in an individual, not be passed on from mum or dad, um, but can arise randomly um, and also um, lead to to epilepsy. So uh, I've been able then to focus on those particular types of causes um, as part of my work in, in, in Ingrid's team. All the genetic epilepsies basically rather than ones that for instance may occur through injury or something like that. Exactly yeah not the, the acquired forms but mm -hmm. yeah, the, the ones with a genetic or we suspect have a genetic cause. And you, yourself Ingrid what about you you've been doing this for a big while now? It's rather long you're quite right. <laughs> Um, so I'm a paediatric neurologist and an epileptologist um, and I see children and adults with epilepsy um, and I started doing my PhD with Sam Berkovic who founded the program with me in epilepsy genetics and we started by looking at large families where many people had epilepsy mm -hmm. and that led with our molecular genetic collaborations to discovery of the first gene back in 1995 and at the time everyone said oh epilepsy is not genetic you get it with a hit on the head. So um, it's been fantastic uh, scientifically to have this sort of 
life journey watching that be transformed. And now everyone says, of course, epilepsy is genetic. Of course, that's obvious. So that's a really big change. And we've moved, as Michael said, from just studying families now to studying everyone. And in fact, very few people with epilepsy have a truly acquired cause, I think. I think most people have genetic, either a single gene or probably more frequently, a multi, uh, multiple genes or polygenic, we call, call that, um, where you have multiple gene um, variants that put you at risk and perhaps yes. they add up. And that leads you to have epilepsy. And we're only really beginning to identify some of these genomic markers now through these large-scale studies. It's really exciting. And personally, a good while ago, when I was thinking of genetic epilepsies um, as a person with epilepsy, I would automatically think of the more severe types of epilepsies, such as the Dravet syndrome or Ring 20 sometimes or, or things like that. Um, when you're talking about genetic epilepsies, are you talking about people on the whole spectrum? Yes. That so I'm definitely not just talking about the severe epilepsies. Genetics has really transformed understanding of the cause of the severe epilepsies. The development to an epileptic encephalopathies is the very long mm. and formal term mm. we use. And now 50% of those children and adults, we actually find the genetic cause, which is amazing. But many other forms of epilepsy are genetic and all of the idiopathic generalized epilepsies that's 25 percent of epilepsies but we don't actually know most of those genes yet only a tiny proportion and some of the focal epilepsies so that you know the pendulum is completely swung from one end to the other I find that so exciting, very exciting. As a person who was, well, I was diagnosed in 1990, and it's like, here's a couple of pills, mate. I, ho I hope you get on all right with those, pretty much. And now what, the work that you're doing gives people today hope for the future. Uh, so tell us about your work into febrile seizures, because there was a recent paper that you released in, in uh, aside with another clinician, I understand, in Denmark. What have you found out through that work? Sorry, that was actually a study with, with Dr. Feenstra, who's, who's a biostatistician um, in, in Denmark, and we were very fortunate. I remember our, our first uh, Zoom meeting with Dr. Feenstra. He pointed out the window at the, at the building next door, and he, he said to us that in that building was um, the Guthrie cards, um, which were the, the small heel pricks that are taken, and it was from every uh, person in Denmark born since the since the 70s, was in the building next door. Amazing. And it, it is amazing. And he actually had access um, to those Guthrie cards um, for genetic studies. And he was had, has had a longstanding interest in febrile seizures going back to 2014 when he published um, the first um, paper uh, looking uh -huh. for uh, associations across the whole genome um, in patients with, in children with febrile seizures. Um, and so um, the other unique thing about uh, Denmark is that they're able to marry up the, that those Guthrie cards with the clinical information for those individuals. Um, and that obviously allowed um, for this, this study on a, on a massive scale, um, more than 7,000 uh, children Whoa. with febrile seizures and more close to 90,000 um, control individuals who did not have um, febrile seizures. So really provided the power to look um, for signals across the genome um, associated with, with febrile seizures. Amazing. It's, it's numbers that speak volumes, right? And so what was the process in, in this research um, and what were the outcomes? 
Yeah, so I mean, the process over a number of years um, was to uh, what we call genotype, which is where we look at all those markers um, across the genome, um, a variety of different uh, changes in our, our genome, and ask which were the changes that were shared by uh, all those children with febrile seizures and that were not shared by all of the other uh, control individuals who did not have um, seizures. And, and what we're able to show um, quite strikingly is that there are a number of genes, um, known epilepsy genes, including the uh, sodium channel genes that Ingrid and, and colleagues have done many, uh, have done much work on, um, as well as uh, genes that we hadn't previously associated with febrile seizures. So for example, uh, there was a prostaglandin receptor that's one of the major fever response uh, genes. So that really fit very nicely um, with, with the phenotype. Um, there was also interleukin-10, which is a, obviously an immune, a marker of the immune response. And then perhaps most strikingly was a number of, of um, uh, molecules involved in neuronal um, excitability. Um, and these were all genes that clustered at what we call the synapse, which is the junction between uh, neurons. Um, and we know that those molecules are, are critical uh, in, the, in the electrical signals um, in, in our brains. Um, and we know if things go wrong with that signaling, that um, seizures can develop. So, um, so those genes also fitted very nicely in a number of them. Um, Ingrid had previously shown were associated with uh, epilepsy um, in the presence of fever. So again, um, fitting very nicely with what um, we'd already, what Ingrid and others had already well established um, for epilepsy, but in this case for for children with with uh, usually with a single febrile seizure, um, and many of whom do not go on to to develop epilepsy. I think this this is amazing, and the stuff I think is well, that this more data that but this outcome is is really exciting, especially if I would say say mums and dads who have no idea what is going on with their child or why have they developed this epilepsy, or even I would say sometimes like sometimes you think uh, I've experienced that oh my child had a febrile seizure, therefore that's all that is and nothing else, which was a hopeful, you know, and understandable, but maybe it's worth considering, maybe that's not all it might be. Yeah, look, um, 3% of Caucasian sort of Western children have febrile seizures, and only 7% of those go on later to develop epilepsy. So it's really important for families to know that febrile seizures may be all that child ever has. Um, and remembering that febrile seizure is defined as occurring between six months and six years, uh, and it's a tonic-clonic seizure, a convulsive seizure, and the temperature has to be over 38 degrees Celsius. Now, as you know rather too well, some of those 3%, only 7%, go on, 7% of the 3% go on to develop epilepsy. And in some cases, that will be temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, it may not be controlled by medication and those people might do very well with epilepsy surgery. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, very, very lucky patient, I would say. Although just to point out um, to everybody, surgery doesn't always equal cure, if you like. They exactly. Can still have, and I think that's really important to note. Like, for instance, um, my expectations were very well managed and I was told that I would be 60% or was there a 60% chance of having no more seizures. Now I do still have seizures, but far fewer and less severe. And so I consider it a completion of success. So just for any mums and dads out there, or even clinicians, managing expectations is crucial with surgery. 
Um, I agree with you. And just giving the correct um, uh, percentages of likelihood. So for some of our patients, particularly temporal lobe epilepsy with hippocampal sclerosis, we would say there's an 80% success rate, but that is defined as 55% of people will be seizure-free and 25% will have a far greater reduction in seizures than they're currently having. But it doesn't mean if they're still having seizures, they won't drive. So it's really important to manage that because you get patients are really disappointed then if they have seizures. But if you've explained that to them, they know there's this risk. And I think you just beautifully articulated that that is still worthwhile in terms of an outcome. Costs the government far less than drugs as well, you know, and well, literally far fewer, at least in my case, ambulance trips, times in the hospital, you know, uh, working days lost, um, and then the positive um, impact on mental health as well, which I think is really, well, at least in my Super case. Super important. Yeah, it's because, you know, you can have all the, and this goes for kids as well, right? Um, although I know sometimes mental health is not necessarily looked at in children overall necessarily if they're not as great communicators as adults but it the mental health affects children too and if you can have more control of your life due to fewer seizures or less severe seizures that's pretty cool so yeah I think mental health is incredibly important and in the last sort of 10 years I ask every patient, are they happy or every parent of a child? Is the child happy? And are they sleeping well? Because I think both sleep and mental health are issues that people don't address head on and we should be. Would you say that's why it's really important for there to be a good connection between the epileptologist and the neuropsychiatrist on many occasions? Well, in Australia, most of our patients would only see a psychiatrist if they had significant mental health problems or a psychologist. So if they've got anxiety, they'd normally see a psychologist. If they've got depression, they might see both. Um, But many patients don't see either. And that's why it's important to ask, because if they are feeling down, if you don't ask, you don't find out. And one of the bad things about telehealth is you don't have that same feeling in the room of the patient walking in and being down. And people can put on a bright face when they're on Zoom for five minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour. But if you're in the room, it's much much easier to feel if there's a mental health problem and to drill down on that. So that's one of my worries with the world pivoting to to Zoom, which we've had to do, Mm. uh, and telehealth. The medicine is less good because you don't have the feeling of the person in the room. And often the patients are busy sitting in their car or between meetings at work. And so they don't put the same amount of... um, feeling into their consultation or not feeling a concentration maybe or or commitment in a way to that consultation so the less in the less out and uh, I think that's a real issue but we're sort of going off topic sorry about that (laughs) no no worries at all it's interesting these things impact people in general they're all families so uh, it's all relevant so um what the what was or what have been your conclusions um, from this research and how are on the febrile seizures and how are you going to take things forward? Yeah, so I think as, as Ingrid mentioned, you know, only a, a, a minority of, of patients who have a febrile seizure will, will have another seizure and will go on to develop epilepsy, um, about 7% from, from previous um, studies. And we really want to look at that in, in our now, you know, large cohort, the largest reported for febrile seizures. We want to be able to track, um, you know, what happens in terms of their, whether or not they develop epilepsy. And we've got the ability 
to do that, particularly with the um, Danish cohort, but also um, in the patients um, that were included from Australia as well. We've got detailed, um, you know, phenotypic mm-hmm. data on, on on them, and we want to be able to track the, their epilepsy um, and potentially look for what we call uh, polygenic um, risk alleles, um, try and figure out um, what are the factors that predispose um, patients to develop epilepsy uh, following that uh, initial uh, febrile seizure. And we, we're, we're going to do that again with our Danish colleagues, but also with other uh, colleagues in Europe and elsewhere in the world that also um, have, um, you know, large cohorts of patients who've had both febrile seizures and, and epilepsy. And an awful thing about lockdown is I've missed the travel. I don't know about you guys, but I've just been, I feel like I've been trapped upon this little island. And um, it's really exciting how <laughs> you, we can collate all this data internationally to get better results, you know, or more reliable results. Um, I, I just find that extraordinary. And I think lots of people aren't even aware that you guys are doing this. And well, that's why we do this podcast, so that people <laughs> have some awareness. Um, you mentioned earlier, Ingrid, you mentioned the work Caucasian. Um, is, are most of the participants of this research Caucasian? Most of the participants in our research program are because that's what most of the population in Australia is. So in our research program, we've got about 23,000 people who are recruited. Uh Uh, They don't all have epilepsy. Some are unaffected parents, for example, but more than 13,000 do have epilepsy or febrile seizures. Mm. Now, obviously, it's really important to get other ethnicities, be they Asian or Hispanic, um, or African. We don't have many African people in Australia, African origin people, but we do have lots of Asian and, um, uh, but we do, you need really large numbers. And th- that's the power of the international collaboration. And yes, we're desperately missing travel too from our big island. But the point is that um, the benefits of collaboration are are wonderful, but they're also essential to this sort of research. You can only get clear answers with large numbers. Uh, and as Michael said, the numbers in this study were huge. So um, we do need to get together to solve these questions, and that's certainly happening with something called the International League Against Epilepsy Consortium on Complex Epilepsies. It's a long name, but International League Against Epilepsy is the big world body for epilepsy. And this is a whole lot of groups, many, probably 50 groups around the world, bringing together their data so that we get large numbers. And that's really beginning to find uh, areas of the genome where there are genes that are contributing to for example, the idiopathic generalised epilepsies. And there's another huge initiative called EPI25, which is um, funded by NIH. Thank you, NIH. And they are looking at now over 30,000 people with epilepsy and doing exome sequencing. So um, they're looking for very rare, abnormal variants in the genome. We call them pathogenic variants. So changes in your genes that are likely to cause disease. And so that's one appro- approach looking for very rare abnormalities. And the other approach, the one I first talked about, are looking for common variants that could be causing disease. But those common variants are very low risk, so tiny increase in your risk, whereas the ultra-rare ones are often a much bigger risk. Mm -hmm. So it's like a puzzle, and we're putting all these pieces together to understand how someone got their epilepsy. If anybody listening wants to, um, say, first of all, say clinicians are more interested in this, and they want to potentially 
um, see if they have uh, patients who would want to be involved in your research and who aren't already? What should they do? Oh, we'd love them to be involved. Um, so if they would like to email us, we don't mind where they are in the world. We have lots of people from all over the world. Um, and the email address is epilepsy-austin, which is the name of our hospital, A-U-S-T-I-N, at unimelb, U-N-I-M-E-L-B, that stands for University of Melbourne, dot E-D-U dot A-U for Australia. And if they email there and say that they're interested in participating in our genetics research, one of our team will get back to them with research forms, patient information forms, they have to sign them. Then we get some saliva or a nose swab. And then Michael's lab extracts the DNA and then we take it from there. Wonderful. And what about um, if patients or families are listening, what should they do to if they want to be involved? And I don't know, maybe their clinician isn't up for it. Is there a way for them to put themselves forward? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, we get loads of families who put themselves forward. Um, we often, the clinicians are a bit slower, but the families are great. <laughs> and um, thank you, families, for all working with us for 30 years. I can't tell you, the families we work with are just incredible. And um, they usually make contact and then we get them to sign consent forms to get their letters. And then we can go back to the clinicians and say, please give us this patient's information. Of course, everything's highly confidential, so nothing is shared with anyone else. And if it's in a family, we're really careful not to share with other members of the family. So that all has to be incredibly carefully managed, and we are very, very careful with that. And would any of the results go onto that individual's medical record, or will it be considered separate? Oh, that's a great question. It depends really on what it means. Okay. So sometimes like this study Michael's described from led by the Danish team and Dr. Feenstra, those results aren't useful at a level for a per person. They're useful in understanding the right. cause of febrile seizures, but they don't help you or me if we have that variant. It doesn't change anything. On the other hand, though, if we find an abnormality in a gene that explains, say, a person's very severe epilepsy uh, with intellectual disability or even without, then it might be something that affects treatment, affects reproductive counselling, and then we would give the result back if the person wants to have the result. Okay, well, everybody who's listening and watching, I will include the links, relevant links below this recording anyway, so you can just click on those or, or copy and paste. And please do put yourselves forward, your families forward, or you know, make your patients aware of this because it's just very exciting and something which keeps many of us lot going. And no doubt you both experienced this too, is even if research into epilepsy does not impact us positively personally, we know that it's going to impact people positively in the future. And that's kind of what keeps loads of us going, I reckon. Yeah, I think it's already making a huge impact to so many people. You know, I, I think people underestimate the impact mm. that it has already had on many people's lives. Thank you both so, so much. Um, it's been an absolute delight to have you both here. Um, and we will keep tuned on your work. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tori, for asking us. Thanks for having us, Tori. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.